Welcome to Infection Prevention Spotlight with Certified Infection Control Nurse, Kara Mullane. Welcome to the research behind infection prevention, where Dr. Mohammed Yassin provides tough questions to top researchers and leaders in their field. This podcast is a collaboration between Infection Prevention Spotlight and the American Journal of Infection Control. If you're interested to find out more on this topic, please go to the September 2020 edition of AGIC. Today, we have the pleasure to hear from Michelle Neronzik and Dr. Nancy Robinson. Both are scientists at Steris Corporation. They'll discuss their study findings on novel endoscope test articles that allow direct visualization of internal channel systems. And then they go deeper into their research by answering questions from Dr. Mohammed Yassin. So please stay tuned. I'm pleased to share the summary from Dr. Mohammed Yassin. The article is from the September 2020 American Journal of Infection Control. Title, Efficacy of Flexible Endoscope Drying Using Novel Endoscope Test Articles That Allow Direct Visualization of the Internal Channel Systems. The authors are employed by Steris Company in Cleveland, Ohio. The aim of the work is novel endoscope test articles that allow direct visualization of internal channel systems and were used to evaluate the effectiveness of alcohol flush and hanging in an ambient endoscope storage cabinet for drying endoscope channels. The routine practice of automated disinfection in all channel alcohol and air dryness was not effective in drying the endoscopes. Vertical hanging did not alter the presence of moisture within the channels. These endoscope test articles are the easiest to describe as naked endoscopes. They have all the functions of an endoscope without the outer protective sheath. They can manually be cleaned and processed in automated high-level disinfection. The channels in the endoscopes have different diameters. The biggest is the instrument and suction channel that are the easiest to dry up while the smaller air and water channels are commonly showing visual evidence of fluid. Today, we have the opportunity to hear from Michelle Neronzik and Dr. Nancy Robinson, scientists who conducted this research. Thank you both for being with us. We appreciate your impressive work in showing the residual moisture within endoscope channels. The photos, diagrams, and tables included in your AGIC publications are showing, beyond a doubt, what we were not able to see without your naked endoscope model or novel test article. So now let's go a little bit deeper with some questions. Michelle and Nancy, the presence of water could allow for regrowth of many bacterial organisms. Why do you think the presence of alcohol is harmful? You pose a very interesting question. Whether or not to flush endoscope channels with 70% alcohol prior to drying is an area of active debate. There are two reasons that alcohol flushing is recommended. The first, as you mentioned, is to control outgrowth of bacteria that may remain in the channels due to either an ineffective disinfection process or use of contaminated rinse water. The second is to promote drying of channels. Our work demonstrated that the second reason, drying of channels, is not valid. 
using novel endoscope test articles that allowed us to directly visualize the internal channels, we observed that residual alcohol is resistant to being pushed out of the channels, while water is easily and quickly removed. While it is true that evaporation of small droplets of residual liquid is faster for alcohol, but because there's just so much alcohol that remains in the channels, in general, it takes longer to dry a channel flushed with alcohol compared to that which is not flushed with alcohol. So, to answer your question, why is the presence of alcohol harmful? It is because the residual alcohol will be removed from the channels during device use. The question is, when will it be removed? At first, we thought the residual alcohol would be removed during the preoperative inspection. This inspection is performed prior to the endoscope being inserted into a patient. However, using the test articles that allowed us to visualize the residual alcohol, We found that after the preoperative inspection, the air channel contained residual, undiluted alcohol, the water channel contained a diluted, and in the case of an enteroscope, undiluted alcohol, and the auxiliary water channel retained diluted alcohol. This remaining alcohol will be expelled into the patient when the air and water are used during an endoscopic procedure. The harm comes from the fact that alcohol can cause damage and irritation to mucosal membranes and is especially concerning for pediatric use. For this reason, the instructions for use for some endoscopes provide a warning to remove residual alcohol to reduce the risk posed by alcohol contacting patient mucosa. Returning to the current debate over alcohol use, other aspects that fuel this controversy are the protein fixative inflammative properties of alcohol. Our results showing that it's more difficult to dry channels flushed with alcohol removes one of the two pros for an alcohol flush. It is my opinion that if the time required to to perform an alcohol flush because there are extra steps involved is instead devoted to performing an effective, the key being effective, drying procedure, the remaining benefit of alcohol use, control of bacterial outgrowth, would not be required. Thank you, Nancy. Now, individual channel compressed air drying was found to be helpful. Why do you think the automated compressed air is not that helpful? I could answer this question with one simple statement. Drying endoscope channels is complex. So what makes something as seemingly straightforward as drying so complex in the case of endoscopes? One of the main reasons is the complexity of the endoscopes themselves. The areas inside the endoscope that are washed and flushed, disinfected, sterilized, and attempted to dry often have several different pathways or what are called the channel systems. And each channel system may have a unique inner diameter and configuration. Adding to that complexity, when a user is attempting to dry, they have to decide where to apply the air. There are several routes where air can be applied due to endoscopes often having several openings to the channel systems. For example, there are methods where a handheld nozzle can be used to apply air to each channel one at a time, which is one of the routes of air application we evaluated in our study. 
Another option and the other route of air application we evaluated is to create a system of tubing that allows air to flow to all the channels at once. This application can be a hands-free method of air delivery where a user can attach the tubing to the air supply and then walk away while the endoscope channels are drying. We found that these are the two commonly practiced methods for applying compressed air, which is why we focused on them in our study. But there are many other ways that air can be applied for drying endoscope channels. So you asked the question, why may one method be better at drying than another? Well, both of the methods evaluated in our study, as well as alternative methods, can lead to an endoscope remaining wet if the factors that impact drying are not considered. We showed that there are differences in drying, each of the unique channel systems, and found that there are several factors that affect drying, including, but potentially not limited to, the route of the air is applied, the air pressure, the type of liquid that's remaining in the channels, whether it be water or alcohol. Um, that's why we want to stress the finding that 10 minutes of compressed air may not be sufficient for effective drying of all channels, whether each channel is dried individually using an air nozzle or using a hand-free or automated system to dry all the channels at once. In the examples shown in our study, at least one out of three channel systems of a colonoscope was not dry within 10 minutes for each method of air application, whether it was the drying individually or when we combined all the channels and dried as one. In a real-world setting, such as an SPD or endoscopy department, if the standard practice is to apply compressed air to the channels for 10 minutes, neither of the two most commonly used methods would have been helpful for drying. And understanding that it's not just a set amount of time that influences effective drying, but there are many other factors to consider should spur endoscope users to reflect on the current practices and look towards establishing newly defined processes for effective drying. So if the endoscope is to be sterilized using ETO or hydrogen peroxide, how can residual moisture, water, or alcohol be harmful? This is an important question because it addresses that the consequences of residual moisture are not limited to the repercussions of storing a wet endoscope where we may see something like microbial outgrowth. But for endoscopes that undergo a low-pressure gaseous sterilization process, residual moisture can prevent effective sterilization and create safety risks. To better understand these concerns, I'm going to walk or talk us through a scenario where residual moisture is present during the vaporized hydrogen peroxide process. Imagine a single drop of liquid remaining on the inner surface of an endoscope channel. The endoscope goes into the sterilizer and the cycle started. As the vaporized hydrogen peroxide process starts, the pressure will decrease. And in response to that decrease, the drop of liquid remaining on the surface of the channel becomes very, very cold and it can convert to ice. When the vaporized hydrogen peroxide is released during sterilization, liquid hydrogen peroxide can condense onto the cold surface of the residual drop. The repercussions of this are twofold. First, any contamination remaining in the spot underneath that frozen drop of liquid will not be exposed to hydrogen peroxide necessary for sterilization. So that little area may not be sterilized and that presents a contamination hazard. 
Second, the condensation of hydrogen peroxide on top of the drop or onto the drop has created a safety hazard because it can contain high levels of hydrogen peroxide. And when expelled, it can cause a chemical burn to the endoscope user or a patient if it comes into contact with their skin or their delicate internal tissues. Similarly, with ethylene oxide sterilization, there are also safety risks when endoscopes remain wet. Ethylene oxide gas is soluble in water, so if there's water that's not effectively removed before ethylene oxide gas is introduced during that sterilization process, the resulting solution, the mixture of the ethylene oxide gas and water, it's unstable, and it presents a combustion risk, according to the American Chemistry Council. Both of these scenarios support that the importance of thorough drying is not limited to preventing microbial outgrowth during storage after high-level disinfection or liquid chemical sterilization, but it's essential for both safe and effective gaseous sterilization processes. Our study shows that drying endoscope channels is not always as simple as applying air for a specific amount of time. There are several factors that have an impact on drying, including air pressure, the route of air application, or in other words, the way or the location in which air is applied to the internal channels, the number and the type of endoscope channel systems, and the type of residual liquid that remains in the channels. Um, there's different groupings of endoscopes. For example, one particular manufacturer's colonoscopes, gastroscopes, and endoscopes with two channel systems. Or, for example, another group would be uh, certain manufacturer's complex scopes, like the ultrasound endoscopes. Um, these two groupings, they may require a specific protocol for effective trying. And one group does not would not may not be dried according to the protocol of the other and this just reiterates and stress the, stresses the need for manufacturers to develop precise drying instructions and new methods of drying verification now in your paper you mentioned that boroscopes and test papers could also detect moisture what are the major limitations of these two tests for moisture detection the progress on understanding how to effectively dry endoscopes has been very slow considering the need. And this is mainly due to the limitations of the currently available methods for detecting residual moisture. There are two main methods that are currently used for detecting moisture in endoscope channels. One is a boroscope, which is an optical device made of either rigid or flexible tubing that provides light and magnification for enhanced imaging of the inside of channels. Of the methods available, boroscopes are the most direct and sensitive tool for examining the inside of some of the channels. However, boroscopes can't fit into narrow channels or navigate complexities like sharp turns and branching junctions. So the use of boroscopes is limited to the wider diameter channels, such as the instrument channel. This limitation has serious implications in the context of our study, where we found that the narrow diameter channels retain the most residual liquid during storage. If a boroscope was used to detect drying in our study instead of our stripped endoscope test articles, it would have led to the false assumption that the endoscope was dry based on examination of the instrument channel. The finding that narrow diameter channels may retain more residual moisture is echoed in several other studies that have shown the narrow diameter channels more commonly contain higher levels of contamination and biofilm. The other most commonly used liquid detection technique is the water indicator test paper method. This method's not limited by the dimensions of the channels like a boroscope. 
However, it does have limited sensitivity. For this method, directed air is applied to an endoscope channel and a piece of indicator test paper is held about 50 millimeters from where the air escapes. Moisture that's emitted and contacts the test paper will change the paper's color. There are several drawbacks to this method. First, it does not account for moisture droplets that may be resisting, resistant to being pushed out of the endoscope due to air just passing over the droplet as opposed to being pushed out, which can happen if the air pressure is too low. And it also doesn't account for evaporation that may occur during the application of directed air. So very tiny little droplets of liquid may just dry when you apply the air before they escape and hit the paper. In a 2019 study, Perumpel et al. showed that this method can miss up to 250 microliters of residual liquid in narrow channels. From personal observation, using the stripped endoscope test articles, 250 microliters of residual liquid in a narrow channel is a significant amount of liquid, and it can fill the majority of that channel. This lack of sensitivity can't be overlooked because the inability to detect even tiny droplets of liquid could present contamination hazard or per promote biofilm formation. The limitations of these moisture detection, detection methods leave the endoscope user without confidence in their drying efficacy and an inability to establish standardized drying steps, which as our data suggests may be unique for different endoscope types. The stripped endoscope test articles used in our study allowed direct and sensitive observation of drying efficacy. But we understand that this method is really not feasible for widespread use because it requires stripping an actual expensive endoscope of its outer sheath, the fiber optics and articulation systems, which is very complex and can be very messy, to reveal the channels inside. So this unmet need for direct and sensitive moisture detection methods, again, puts emphasis on endoscope manufacturers to provide specific verified drying instructions and for future development of novel methods for detecting residual moisture. Now for our final question. Can you tell us, was moisture implicated in any previous endoscope-related clinical infections? And from your experience, how could you prove that moisture was a source of exogenous endoscopic infections? In a 2017 review article, Endoscope Drying and Its Pitfalls, Kovaleva summarized 26 published reports in which a drying or storage problem was identified as the source of exogenous infections and cross-contaminations. Of these articles, 17 of the 26 reported patients being infected. So yes, there are many reports of residual moisture being the suspected cause of clinical infection. It is interesting that the problem cited as the cause in 13 of the 26 reports was drying without alcohol flush. I wonder if the more likely issue was the endoscope channels were not effectively dried. The results of our study show that the method used to dry, for example, the location where the air is introduced, can have a profound impact on the time that's required to dry the internal channels. Because there are no standardized drying methods or detailed instructions on how to perform drying, and no good method to verify channel dryness, it seems likely the issue was simply the channels were not effectively dried. As to the second question, 
definitively proving inadequate drying causes an endoscope-related infection is not easy. This is due to the complexity of endoscope reprocessing. However, since the beginning of flexible endoscope use, it has been clear that drying the internal channels decreases the level of residual organisms recovered from the devices. The first mention is in a 1982 article by Gerding et al., which was titled Cleaning and Disinfection of Fiber Optic Endoscopes, Evaluation of Glutaraldehyde Exposure Time and Forced Air Drying. It's interesting. In this early article, so 1982, we don't even know how to effectively disinfect these types of devices. And yet, we're looking at air drying. In this paper, it's shown that patient use endoscopes that were then cleaned and disinfected and then stored from 20 to 72 hours without drying showed a contamination rate of 31%. So without drying, the contamination rate was 31%. Addition of a drying step decreased this rate from 31% to 5%. That's a pretty profound impact of adding a drying step. Almost 10 years later, in 1991, Alpha and Sitter evaluated the effect of drying duodenoscope instrument channels. Without drying, 40% of the tested duodenoscope instrument channels were contaminated after 48 hours of storage. The addition of 10 minutes of drying resulted in none of the duodenoscope instrument channels evaluated, displaying detectable bacterial growth. Interestingly, these researchers clearly showed organism outgrowth during storage. That is, the number of bacteria increased by over two logs from being, when evaluated at two hours, out to 48 hours. So we had a two log increase in the number of organisms that could be recovered. However, air drying the channels without performing an alcohol flush prevented this outgrowth. While these reports do not directly show that ineffective drying causes patient infection, they do show a significant impact of drying on contamination level of endoscopes after storage, which indirectly supports the theory that ineffective drying will lead to patient infection. Thank you so much for that final answer, Nancy. And thank you to both of you, Michelle Naranzik and Dr. Nancy Robinson, for your great work and insight to help us clean and disinfect our endoscopes and keep our patients safe. Thank you so much for listening. Remember, if you want to find out more, please do go to the September 2020 edition of AGIC to read the full article from the American Journal of Infection Control and Infection Prevention Spotlight. Thank you for all you do to prevent infection. Take care, and please remember, wash your hands. Thank you.